This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. On today's episode, in honor of Black History Month, we are bringing you a special, never-released episode with journalist and Emmy Award-winning television producer, my friend Jamil Smith. Jamil is an extraordinary person who I will tell you all about in just a minute, but first a little secret. We actually recorded the bulk of this episode in early 2020. Jamil and I, after the beginning of the pandemic, ended up recording a second episode that we decided to release that year instead, which you'll hear in next week's re-release. But after going back and listening to both parts of our conversation in totality, I felt that this deserved to make its way into your home, your car, your earbuds, or wherever you find yourself listening to this podcast. There are portions of this conversation that we had then that feel even more relevant to me now. And as we all look at the landscape of the world around us and how best to show up for each other, one of the people who I love to have conversations about showing up, speaking up, and loving up with is my friend Jamil. I'm thrilled for you to hear this conversation with someone I am beyond honored to know. So let's get to it. Listeners, I am so excited, honored, and just thrilled for you to hear my conversation today with journalist and Emmy award-winning television producer, my friend, Jamil Smith. Through his work, Jamil explores a range of political and cultural topics, including national affairs, race and racism, politics, identity, police brutality, feminism and gender roles, and pop culture. Jamil's career has been nothing short of incredible. As a journalist and a commentator, he's been featured in the New York Times, Esquire, The Washington Post, HuffPost, and The Los Angeles Times, among others. He's served as a senior editor at The New Republic, launching and hosting the magazine's first podcast, Intersection, and he was a senior national correspondent at MTV News. Jamil also worked as a segment producer for NFL Films, earning him three Emmy Awards, 
after which he went on to join MSNBC, serving as a producer for both The Rachel Maddow Show and Melissa Harris Perry. While he was a senior writer for Rolling Stone at the time of recording, he is now a senior correspondent at Vox and co-host of his very own podcast, Vox Conversations. Today, I'm sitting down with Jamil to discuss his early life growing up in Ohio, the incredible journey into the depths of our country's politics and culture that his career has taken him on, the Black Lives Matter movement, what it would really mean for us to love each other a little more, and so, so much more. Enjoy. I love to start with people uh, by going backwards because, yes, you you are an incredible journalist. You are a beautiful writer. You report for Rolling Stone on, on some of the most important issues in regards to politics and identity. You come from the world of Rachel Maddow. You, you are often first to report on things the world needs to know about. But how did you get like this? <laughs> like, what happened? Because I I know that you grew up in Cleveland. Yes. And so I wonder about my friend Jamel, who I know in the present. Like, who were you as a kid? Who were you at 10 years old? Were you were you writing stories? Were you really curious? What what was your life in Ohio? Okay. So it's an interesting it's an interesting start um, on a number of levels. So I'm I'm the son of a Vietnam veteran, my father and my mother, who is you know phenomenal intellectual, uh, is now a professor. My mom went to graduate school while I was in high school to get her master's, and then mm. while I was in undergrad, was getting her a PhD. So we were both in college at the same time, and I'm enormously proud. That's so cool. Of, I'm enormously proud of both of them. So my parents were divorced when I was very young. And that is, is you know, significant because I, I don't really remember them being married. I don't remember us all as a unit, but we were, it's the most well-adjusted, you know, family unit you could have considering that situation because uh, you know, I, they are, they're wonderful to each other. And um, it is good that I have this one memory of that time when I'm about three or four years old, um, they took me to a concert because I was crazy about Shaka Khan. I remember this, even from when I was like three or four years old. And crazy about Shaka Khan and this album she did, uh, Rufus and Shaka Khan. And they took me to the now defunct uh, uh, closed front row theater, this amphitheater in Cleveland, to see Shaka Khan. And Shaka Khan, long story short, comes out into the crowd singing, you know, singers do sees, I guess, my little cute Afro self and picks me up, holds me in her arms and sings to me. And I remember this because I remember the look on my parents' faces, even when, when, I, when I was that young uh, and sings to me, kisses me on the cheek and sets me down. And, um, you know, it is possibly my earliest memory of you wow. know, Shaka Khan doing that. But it's also really sweet because it's one of the only memories I have of the three of us together. So from mm. there, um, I grew up in, you know, have you read A Little Fires Everywhere? It's in my book stack. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those books I haven't gotten to. God. Well, 
that is the neighborhood in which I grew up, Shaker Heights, Ohio. And so, and the author of the book uh, went to my high school. And just reading the book, it's just the details in it are so uncanny. She just nailed it. Um, it was a really unique place to grow up because, you know, this like ostensibly racially diverse neighborhood, pretty much 50 50 high school. But, and it was, and this is a city, city, by the way, in the 60s, Shaker Heights was celebrated as this wonderful, like beacon of diversity and, and perfection. It's one of the only, I think it's the first planned community in the United States um, of its type. So, you know, you get to the high school and then on one side of the cafeteria are all the white kids and on the other side of the cafeteria, are all the black kids. And this, wow. I come into this from a private school where I was one of very few black kids and I got along with everybody. So I just, I sat with people who I wanted to, see, wanted to sit with. I vibed with people who I vibed with. I vibe, you know, I still have a ton of black friends and a ton of white friends and a ton of Asian friends from high school and I carried on through through college when I really came out of my shell. I was very shy uh, in high school, but came out of my shell in, in college at, at University of Pennsylvania. And that's kind of like where I, I kind of became who I am as a person. Um, I think mm. I got my values from my parents and my grandparents in terms of my, my, my strong feminist beliefs. Uh, it came from not just having strong women in my life, but caring about their lives and their outcomes. You know, it wasn't just like, hey, my mom and my grandmother are really strong individuals and and go to work and provide for their families. But it's about investing in that outcome for them and, and people like them that I think is something that was instilled in me very early. And I'm not sure who did that. I mean, my father, you know, was very progressive. I just think that, you know, being around people who who nurture you and who, to, who actually believe in you makes all the difference when you're a kid. Mm. And that's, uh, that's what I was blessed to have. When you talk about those beliefs being instilled in you as a kid, you know, investing in the women in your family, being even aware enough to be concerned with their outcomes, are there things that in hindsight you realize showed you how to do that? Are there, are there things that you now see as an adult man that you grew up witnessing in your home that maybe some less less feminist men did not? That is an interesting question. I think that, well, with my grandmother, when I was very young, she would take me to work with her. She worked for the magistrate in Pittsburgh. Uh, my whole side of that family is from Pittsburgh. And she would take me to work with her and not just kind of dote on me as a child in the office, but set me up with a typewriter and say like, okay, you know, I got to do work. I have, this is important but I need you to sit here and behave. And I was a good kid. I, that wasn't really hard for me, but I, you know, I sat there and, and I observed. And I think this is where my early development of my power of observation, I think it helps me in my work. I think that I observed what was happening in that office. I observed the gender dynamics, the racial dynamics. I observed how people talk to one another. I observed mm -hmm. what was respectful and not, and not respectful. And I think that to a large, to a large extent, seeing my grandmother, though she was a secretary, have a position of power in that office because she was competent and she was treated well, that probably had a big effect on me. And, you know, knowing that my mom was single mom and working hard to provide and, but I was seeing my dad, you know, she was, she made sure that she stayed in Cleveland so that she, I could have a relationship with my father. And I was, there with him every other, I feel like almost every other day. 
it's almost like I was growing up in just the same house, but just two different houses. And hmm. I think like, the key to that is you have parents who have a really healthy relationship and they prioritize you. And then you also see good examples in your life of people who embody the values that you can you hold dear and not just say that they're about them, but they actually practice those values. And so the old saying, you know, don't talk about it, be about it. That really uh, mm. sunk in early. So I, I think that that's where that comes from. And also I was a pretty well-read kid. So I was uh, always reading stories, maybe a little bit beyond my age, my age range, but I was reading about things that, uh, that really gave me perspective on the world, uh, maybe a little bit prematurely. And I think that uh, that might've been a good thing. So I, I think overall it was, it was a good childhood. You know, I, I had people who supported me and supported my intellectual pursuits. And as far as writing, I mean, eighth grade, Mrs. Handy uh, in the English class hands me my assignment back and says, this is this is great. You, you're a really good writer. And that's the first time a teacher really told me that I was good at something. And I gave a copy of the assignment to my grandmother. And she had it on her fridge till the day she died. And I have it framed mm. here in my house. That's so special. Yeah. I think there's something so amazing that happens when kids are really supported and encouraged for their intellect, because intellectual pursuits by their nature make you a more expansive human being. Yes. They make you more in touch. They make you more curious. They make you want to learn about others. So if we fuel the intellect of children, they often become more well-rounded and fair human beings. Right. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm a Libra. I'm inclined towards balance and fairness as it <laughs> is. But I, I had people around me who said, hey, you're smart. You're good. So no matter what you may be hearing at school from these kids who may be peer pressuring you or bullying you or what have you, you are good. And I was always coming home and feeling valued all the time. So cool. And so I, I ache for those kids who don't who don't have that, who have probably more intellect than I did and don't have that nurtured because they have terrible schools, because they have bad housing with environmental concerns that can either affect them physio physiologically in terms of their intellect or affect their health in other ways. Yes. And and then then we see something like this pandemic happen and then those people suffer disproportionately. And then you have a president yes. gets up on the mic and says, I don't know why this is happening. I have no idea. I just I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, we we know exactly why it's happening, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm curious. You know, you you talk about Mrs. Handy, and I I love that. I <laughs> my favorite English teacher in high school um, was my teacher, Mr. Goss. He was just the greatest, the yeah. greatest, um, and and certainly helped me become the the writer. You know, the amateur journalist that I am today. <laughs> Um, and that was further fueled by my favorite professor in college, Christopher Smith, who I just spoke to yesterday, which is so funny. I was actually, I was on a Zoom meeting with a, with a writer that I love talking about a project we want to work on together. Huh. She's this phenomenal screenwriter. And I was telling her about interviewing my college professor on my podcast and he texted me and I was like, what the universe, <laughs> what is happening? 
It was so bizarre. So it's funny. He's if I get a text message from him again right now, I'm going to lose my shit. Um, but I, you know, I think about those teachers who really become so formative for us. And and you know, you talk about this paper you still have from the eighth grade, and and while you were in high school, you know, before we get into UPenn, you started writing for the student paper. Yes. Was that later in your high school career or was it, was it in the beginning? Do you remember what you first wrote about? How, how did that happen? I remember not only what I first wrote about, but the very first day I walked into Sally Schwartz's office, she was our journalism teacher and said, I want to write for the school paper. This is the, like the first week of school. I'm in brand new at Shaker Heights high school. And I walk into Sally Schwartz's office and my little confident self is like, I want to work for the paper. And she's like, well, you got to take my class. You had to take the journalism class in order to qualify to write for the Shaker Right. And so I, I said, fine, I'll do it. I took the class and eventually I became one of the uh, news editors. Um, but the very first thing I wrote about had to do with race. So Shaker Heights borders Cleveland. And there are traffic barriers that when you're coming from Cleveland into Shaker on certain streets and certain certain uh, passageways, there are little traffic barriers there to slow down ostensibly the traffic coming from Cleveland, which is it's it, it stereotypes Clevelanders as more wild or reckless. And it's very heavily black area that's right outside of Shaker. So I believe it was a councilman had taken a banner and stretched it over the main thoroughway, Lee Road, that, that runs through Cleveland and then into Shaker. And it had <laughs> apartheid Shaker on the banner. And I was, I said, okay, I think I'm going to go write about that. And yeah. And wow. Yeah. It was a, it was a thing. It was a thing. And so it's, because it was viewed as racially discriminatory, again, because you have this very heavily black neighborhood that's being essentially told that we need to protect ourselves from you with these traffic barriers. And it's to me, I saw plenty of dangerous things in Shaker when I was growing up, too. And I, I saw the councilman's point. And so it didn't lead me. I didn't start opinion writing until much later. But I, mm. I think and it's I think it's really important for opinion writers to train as reporters because you need mm. to learn how to actually do the journalism. You can't just go out there and just spout off, you know, <laughs> whatever you want to say. You have to back it up in, in terms of your reporting. And so I think that training was very, very good as I went to college and, and then became an opinion writer for the Daily Pennsylvania. Wow. So why UPenn? How did you make that decision? So I was down to the two schools that had the best two college dailies in the country, uh, Daily Northwestern and the Daily Pennsylvanian. And I decided I wanted to go to school in an urban environment. Uh, I wanted to do it in a city that I was not familiar with or had not really ever been to. So Chicago and Philadelphia both met that bill. But I went up to uh, Northwestern on a minority scholars weekend after I was accepted. And even though I vibed with a whole lot of people there, I just was in the Midwest again. Um, I saw the lake mm -hmm. was right there and I knew what kind of weather Chicago had. <laughs> tell me about it. And so, uh, yeah, I don't need to tell you. Uh, and then I said, yeah, I think I'm going to go to Philadelphia. I don't know anything about Philadelphia. I'd been there once to visit the campus. <laughs> they did not show us the rough parts, <laughs> but uh, I had a really positive experience overall through my four years at Penn. And 
I had, you know, wonderful friends that are, you know, I'm still in touch with out of that experience and wonderful professors, uh, Al Phil Reese, Herman Beavers, and Greg Canfield, uh, to name a few, who are really positive and important in my life and remain so. And so it was, it was hard in a lot of respects because I, I felt like I, I didn't have family. But the thing is, I also picked Penn in part because my parent, my grandparents were in Pittsburgh and it was a bus drive away from Philadelphia. Whereas if I was in Chicago, I don't have any family there. So that, right. and then there was, you know, the Ivy League thing, you know, mm-hmm. which got, you know, <laughs> I was disabused of that. Uh, I think about a month in, uh, once I saw wow. some of my classmates, but, um, <laughs> you know, Donald Trump went there. So, yeah. Yikes. What, what did you study there? I was an English major mm-hmm. and I saw, I, I was going in there thinking I was going to do English and history double major, but I wanted to study abroad. And I figured that, that I wasn't going to be able to do that while trying to do two majors. So I, I, I cut it down to English because I really viewed undergraduate uh, study as a time to learn how to think rather than trying to absorb all the information. I really wanted to basically train my brain for the world. And, it, and I was doing it, you know, with one of my favorite pastimes, which was reading and writing. And so I really enjoyed and Farrah Griffin, another professor who's now at Columbia, uh, was really important to me. That's where I really feel first fell in love with the, with the, with the major was in her class and in Greg Canfield's class. And they, and the reason why is because they both encouraged me to have critical thinking in every aspect of what I was doing. I remember there was one ask in, in Professor Canfield's class, his TA gave me a C plus on a paper I had written about Walden, Henry Thoreau's Walden, in which I basically argued that this was um, a, an equivalent of basically re- what we would call a reality stunt nowadays, that no matter what, he could always go back. And this idea that he was just like living off the land, I just, to this day, I still think it's a crock. And I wrote this whole paper basically theorizing <laughs> it. And, you know, laying out my uh, analysis and the TA gave me a C plus and uh, like, but no real explanation. So I went to Professor Canfield. I said, look, I think this guy gave me a C plus because he disagrees with me. And that is not how you argue. And that's not how you, you, you do things. I would love if you could reevaluate this paper. And if I deserve the C plus, great, I'll take it. But just read, just read it and see if my argument makes any sense. And he gave me an A minus. <laughs> <laughs> so tenacity tenacity but it also it was a good lesson in how to approach your arguments calmly uh, as calmly as you mm-hmm. possibly can because you know i could have gotten in that ta's face and shouted him down and cussed him out and uh, you know I, I, that wouldn't have gotten me anywhere now there are times for that in this world sure as you well know <laughs> but but to your point critical thinking should be the root of everything. We have to look past what our initial response is because of an opinion or a feeling or a personal experience and look critically at what is happening. And I think, you know, as, and we'll, and we'll get there, but sort of the asterisk for present day politics is that nobody wants to think critically about policy. They just want to play party lines and Look at the detrimental effects that this is having on all of our communities, and in particular, historically oppressed ones. It's it's a goddamn mess. Yeah. And we've got to return to a time where we are looking at 
science, where we are looking at fact, where we are looking at financial data, and we're making decisions based in critical thought. There, there's something that I I love just because I know about it uh, in your experience at UPenn. While you were, I believe it was your senior year, right? You were a rape crisis counselor. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's just such a testament to who you are. And I'm curious because I think about most of the boys I knew and what they were doing their senior year in college, and they certainly weren't volunteering to be rape crisis counselors. How did you decide that that was something that you wanted to do? And then how, as a young man, do you show up in an arena like that and get the role and 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 get taken seriously as as someone who wants to be an ally and who wants to to serve in that way. The impetus for me joining uh, what was then known as Students Together Against Acquaintance Rape was, I you know, I think two things. One, I knew and had seen a number of people who had been traumatized by the really you know pervasive rape culture at our camp in our campus. And I'm not talking about people who just simply sexually you know, suffered sexual assault, but or harassment, but just simply because I, I, I saw people's behavior change to accommodate mm-hmm. for it, and that's men and women. So men, I saw guys who were you know previously kind of with it, you know, they got sucked into this culture, and then they started spouting off this all misogynist garbage, and then I saw women who were traumatized by that that by that climate. And I felt like I wasn't doing my job as a, as a student who was aware of these things if mm-hmm. I didn't actually try to do something about it. And so I thought about it, and my friend Katie uh, was part of this group, and so she told me a little bit more about what was involved. And uh, you know, we had take back the nights, you know, on a uh, you know, locust walk in our in our campus, and that deeply mm-hmm. affected me. But it wasn't really until I actually became a counselor and really started talking to you know, guys in particular because it, it was required for all the fraternities on campus to have one of these workshops from our group. Wow. And it's a really good Wish thing. Wish they did that today. It's a really good thing because a lot of these guys didn't know what rape was. They didn't understand that if you force a woman down or you don't get her consent and affirmative consent, as uh, my friend Jessica Valenti and, ja- and Jacqueline Friedman have, uh, have so ably defined, affirmative consent is so vital. You have to, mm. it, it doesn't ruin the mood, guys, if you hear yes, or you have to ask for a yes. It doesn't ruin the mood. Just get affirmative consent. Then, then you both mm. are on the same plane. And frankly, it makes, makes it better. I'll be perfectly frank. Um, <laughs> you know, when, you, when you're not, when you both are on the same page as to where your consent is. I want to be here. I want to have this experience. I'm I'm all in for it. That's what it means. Mm-hmm. And getting these guys to understand that uh, was really rewarding in a lot of ways because I really hope it sunk in and maybe prevented them from, if not becoming rapists in the, or sexual abusers per se, just knowing how to interact with women better, uh, knowing how mm-hmm. to you know, possibly, you know, be better partners. And now, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect in that regard, but I think that it's certainly 
taught me a lot about how we learn behaviors unconsciously in the society and how we have to mm. actively take an interest in unlearning them or else they just sink right in and then they surface sometimes at the worst times. And we just need to invest in that for ourselves. And whether that comes in the form now, if you're an adult in therapy, um, whether it comes in the form of talking to friends and you know, commiserating or simply removing yourselves from negative situations, mm-hmm. you, you got to do it. You have to do it and do it now. It's never too late. Mm. There's been so much exposure and reporting on the prevalence of sexual assault on college campuses. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, because what a progressive idea, you know, that when you were in college, fraternities had to meet with rape crisis counselors. Why do you think that hasn't been instituted as a policy in all colleges? Why, why do you think we haven't made more progress teaching young people that other young people's bodies are not for the taking? I think to some degree, sexual violence is still regarded as an individual crime rather than a systemic problem. Mm. It is the, you know, hey, this bad seed did this or this one thing happened and we don't know what happened and it's really tragic and it's terrible. And that Mm. just happened. It happened. It's just a thing that happened. Whereas I view it more systematically. I think that there is a culture that teaches us how to behave towards one another. And then if you are in those individual situations, things can happen, but those are consequences often of learned behavior from a a system that needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. And that is why, um, that's why, you know, we, like I was saying before, we need to invest in it. Uh, We need to invest in creating that change rather than simply hoping that someone else does it for us. Now, I think that's a hell of a thing mm-hmm. for a journalist to say, considering I write about things that people, other people do. But I think what I try to use my journalism to do is to inform people about what I think is important, especially through my commentary, in my opinion, and give them a perspective on things that helps them perhaps reconsider their previously held beliefs. And mm. sometimes also people need a rallying cry. So if I'm writing something that's just like, hey, uh, we need to be paying attention to this problem because it's important. And I think it's important. And you should think it's important. And it's a little bit of a, you know, sort of <laughs> juvenile way of putting it. But I, I think that it's that really is the essence of what we do as opinion writers is to try to mm-hmm. give people perspective on something that we think we should be shining. Everyone should be shining a light upon and and mm-hmm. reconsidering and. Because I think that, you know, if you're writing opinion and you were just simply regurgitating, you know, sort of the, the commonly held wisdom on Twitter or what you maybe, you know, understand from your training from you know, wherever you may come from, then you're not necessarily offering something that's valuable in the, in the marketplace of ideas. Mm. Because you, I think there's inherent in that there's a refusal for the writer to consider whether or not she or he is wrong. And I think I approach, I try to approach every column that I write, understanding that I could be very wrong about the argument that I'm presenting. And Mm -hmm. that's why I try to substantiate it the best I can. And I also leave open the possibility that things could change, number one. 
Number two, that other facts may come to light, which may change my mind. And number three, I think that you know, there is you know, world events that happen that shifts our entire lens on what we've been thinking about and forces us to reconsider everything anew. And I hope that, you know, people are, you know, pining, whether it's in a tweet or in a, a, a column or a feature length essay or a poem, even that they consider the fact that they're not infallible. And mm. I just think that, you know, that's the, that's the healthy approach that we need to take. And that's something that I've had to learn because sometimes you, you get carried away with yourself and hey, um, I know I'm right that this guy is an asshole. I know I'm right that this guy is is hurting people. I know I'm right about this, this, and this. Well, you may think you're right, but leave open the possibility for being wrong. I like that a lot. Do you think that that was a skill that you were honing in college? Because you know, you you talk about being an English major. I I imagine you were writing a lot. A lot. And and after college, you you get into TV, you get into sports, you know, what, what is the transition there? And, and how do you think you brought this, this consciousness of, you know, justice, parity, equality, your experiences with you in, into that world, which is so highly competitive and, and perhaps not always so open to the more empathetic exploration and examination of how we as humans treat each other. Right. Um, I think that uh, it took a lot of learning and a lot of mistakes. Um, and, mm. and honestly, I wasn't, again, I mean, as much as I may have been assertive in my writing, and I think this is still a little bit true today. I was not nearly as assertive as far as, you know, having courage to really even start the career that I wanted I came out of college hmm. and I looked at a bunch of journalism jobs that weren't paying much. I'm a kid from Cleveland who has no real connections. Um, I'd done an internship out here in LA at a production company, Disney Studios, but you know, after, after commencement, that job fell through. And so I'm sitting at, you know, that summer back home wondering what I'm going to do um, and how, how this is all going to work out. And I end up working at William Morris um, as an assistant for four years, uh, which is, I guess, sort of my graduate school uh, in a lot of ways. But I think that it really comes from, you know, there's a, there's a through line through all of my strange career, which is that I love telling stories. And whether it's inventing stories, you know, for fiction, um, or having really, mostly my career has really been about news and, and documentary stuff. That, yeah, that it, it, it really teaches you how to see something through someone else's eyes. And I think that as much as I may have been empathetic in college, I really, that empathy really grew once I started telling other people's stories. And so I'm at CNN as a PA and then HBO Sports as an associate producer. Then I go on to NFL Films, making football movies for Steve Sable uh, for six years. And you know, that's an aspect of my career I think a lot of people aren't really cognizant about. Um, and that is the time also, you know, I, I, I try to encourage people, especially young people, when I speak to them, you have to not just go on every interview because you can always learn something. But you, if you have different passions, I had passions for film and TV. You know, at one point in my high school years, I was going to be the next Spike Lee. I had hmm. these passions 
that I wanted to develop, but also the journalism and, and the writing. And I didn't really see how I, they were going to mesh quite, but I just took the time in my life to pursue both. I took the mm-hmm. time, you know, to be at NFL films and to enjoy what it was like to do highlights and, you know, do documentary segments and, and, and be on an NFL field during a game and all these different things that I will, you know, I loved as a kid. And then I got the chance to go and work for MSNBC, work under intellects like Rachel and Melissa and, and really understand how a TV show should run. And then once I was done with cable news, I feel like I was done with that phase of my life. It was time to write full time because I, you know, Rachel mm-hmm. Maddow, you know, found me on Twitter. <laughs> That's how I got that job. And I was opining and writing this blog that no one was reading because I had a passion for doing that. And then later on, I had a passion for write full time. And we, with, with, her, you know, with Melissa's blessing, I went off to the New Republic, became a senior editor. And then I was nearly 40 years old, starting my writing career mm. full time. And, and what was going on at the New Republic in 2015? What, what was the <laughs> landscape there? It was fresh off of the mass defection following Chris Hughes taking over the magazine, uh, the Facebook co-founder. And so Chris was our boss and Gabriel Snyder uh, was my editor in chief. And Gabe is the one who really brought me in. And at the time, I, I, I think I became the, 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 in terms of like African-Americans at the New Republic, the highest ranking on the masthead they'd ever had in 100 years of the magazine, which didn't say a lot. <laughs> Which didn't say a lot at all, but it doesn't say a lot. And also, you're like, yeah, I kicked that door down. I'm I'm happy that yeah, both hand, I suppose, both hand, both hand. But I, you know, that was the place where I really learned how to work in a, you know, a daily journalistic environment um, that was about Mm. the kinds of things that I knew. I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I think for the rest of my life. And this is where I'm getting the training. I know this as I'm, mm. as it's happening. I'm getting the training to do what I hope to be doing, you know, maybe until I'm 78 years old. Mm. And I just, I basically, I didn't take it as like an internship or anything. <laughs> By no means. I had a podcast. I, you know, I was writing my tail off, but I just, I just found it was a really interesting learning ground. And when it all fell apart, when, when Chris decided to sell the magazine, I already had an exit door to MTV News, uh, where I became a senior national correspondent, and that was fun. Casual. <laughs> I've had I've had a lot of luck in my career. Yeah, by all means. <laughs> so the New Republic shutters. You go to work for MTV News, and then and then over the last five years, how do we how do we get to this place where you are? writing these incredible pieces for Rolling Stone, a cover story for Time Magazine, you know, all all across this journalistic landscape, while the landscape of journalism has really been changing. It's a, it's such a strange time for magazines, online publications, print papers, editors and formats have been shifting around. You know, how have you created a path on a road that seems to be moving constantly? Um, I think a lot of it, you have to own it up to luck. I think I just say, hey, I got lucky that I had this opportunity with MTV, right? As New Republic, uh, under Chris Hughes at least, was crumbling. It's obviously still still publishing. But 
I get to MTV and I, while we have a wonderful, amazing team of all stars, I mean, Doreen St. Felix is now with the New Yorker, Ira Madison, who's now, you know, the podcaster for Keep It. Just this like murderer's row of writers, Jessica Hopper, Carvel Wallace. Mm. And somehow the corporate overlords don't understand the value of what we're doing or of what we can bring, the value that we can bring to their organization. So it was like, I like it. I hesitate to use sports metaphors, but it's like a coach getting fired after his first year. You know, like you haven't even had a chance to change the culture yet. You haven't even had a chance to really make mistakes and 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 be forgiven for them. I I just think that it was one of the most fulfilling professional experiences I've ever had. And I just even today, you know, folks who are you know with that crew, we still talk about um, the fact that we could have really done some damage if we'd been given another chance. But the problem, as you mentioned, the changing landscape of news is that we got caught up in the whole pivot to video thing. You know, this whole you know thing based off of false Facebook algorithms, these corporate media folks thinking like, okay, we're going to make more money with video uh, as opposed to the written word. Let's get rid of all of these journalistic all-stars and we're going to bring wow. in video crew. And, you know, since then they pivoted right back to print, you know? <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, it's a real shame because <sighs> I think people are a little bit jumpy in this business. Um, I think it, you know one of the things I really love about working for Rolling Stone is that they've invested in the print product. You have this wonderfully beautiful revised magazine that's on this wonderful paper and you have this great journalism that's still in it and they've invested in it. And that to me is the kind of place yeah. that I want to be at a place that invests in the journalistic product and understands that, look, you don't, buy magazines necessarily to make money. You buy it so that you can help perpetuate something that's good in the world. You know, one of the adages mm. that, that I always remember from my time with uh, Rachel Maddow is that she would always say, you know, I want to increase the amount of useful information in the world. And whether that's through your mm. reporting, whether that's through your opinion, whether that's through your, you know, being an essayist or a poet, if you can increase the amount of useful information in the world, especially as a journalist, you're doing the right thing. Yes, I love that. But one of the reasons why I am a journalist, I think it's different. Mm-hmm. So when I was 15 years old, um, my cousin Andre was murdered. And he had been I'm missing so for sorry. a while. Thank you. It's still something I'm wrestling with. And... Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 15 years old. I'm coming back from a Martin Luther King Day program, and my my mother gives me the, the terrible news once I get in there, you know, once I get home. And, you know, he was the closest thing I ever had to an older brother. And he's mm. just experiencing that loss and checking the papers in Cleveland to see if anyone wrote it up. And in Michigan, where he was found, to see if anyone wrote it up. I actually went to the library. I don't think I ever told my mother this, but I actually went to the library, you know, asked for like the microfiche of like the Detroit Free Press so that I could see if there was anything there about him. And there was nothing. And it sticks with me because there's so many people out here who don't get their stories told because there are certain people in power, whether they be in media or government, who don't think that they matter or they don't have the time 
you know, they, they got this other story to cover. And, you know, I, I hate turning down pitches sometimes because of that, because I know that that story means everything to that person. That's why they're reaching out to me at this big platform. And when I tell them, hey, um, I'm working on this feature, uh, I don't have the time, or I'm, I'm really sorry, um, but I don't have the ability right now to investigate it, it hurts my heart because I think of that moment uh, when I was a kid and I didn't see my, you know, my, my big cousin's life valued in the same way that I valued him. And mm-hmm. that needs to be a goal of our, of our journalism, I think, in this country, is to make mm-hmm. sure that you, we're not going to accomplish it every day. It's just not, it's not possible. But we need to shoot for it, this, the, 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 especially with opinion journalism, the, to, to make people's stories, to illuminate them in ways that the reader sees a completely different person that they may have otherwise just walked past on the street. Mm. I think one of the masters of that is right here in Los Angeles, Steve Lopez at the LA Times. He's brilliant at it. There are other columnists I, I read growing up, Dwayne Wickham and Ralph Wiley, you know, these, these masters of the written word who are able to bridge different mediums sometimes if they have to, but really in that journalistic medium, make people feel valued who would otherwise be ignored. And mm-hmm. if I can do that, with what I'm doing, uh, then I'm going to keep doing it. And as long as I don't get distracted from it <laughs> mm. um, too much, I, I, you know, if I decide to go on and tell stories, you know, through television medium or film, those are avenues may be available. But for right now, this is, this is who I am and this is what I do. Yeah. And I think to your point about what it can do to people when their stories are not told, when no one takes a moment to honor their experience. There is such a profound opportunity for closeness in really exploring the story of a person. You know, when when you can feel because of something you've read that you, you empathize, you sympathize, you understand a person, it's really profound. And and there's a there's a way that you told a story of someone that I would love to touch on because it really ties to all the things we've discussed to, you know, experiences of race and gender to the complexity of what it means to be in, um, in a body. I mean, essentially that is, you know, not a white cisgendered male body. And I'm sure there are some people who have heard that term a lot and, I would imagine most of the listeners of my podcast understand where we're going to go with this, but I'm sure there's some people who go like, God, I'm so sick of hearing about it. But the reason I feel like we have to come to the table of conversations like these openly and, and be willing to repeat, um, subject matter is because it takes a while for things to really get in. And I know that I experience proximal power to, you know, white male supremacy because I'm a white woman. But I also know that there has never been a day that has gone by in my entire life when I have not been reminded out in the world that I am a woman right. and that I'm either sexualized against my will or 
diminished because I couldn't possibly be a female and have a high intellect or be pretty and smart. That's got to be impossible. No, no, no way. There's there's always, (laughs) no, never. Or, or can't you just sit still and shut the fuck up so I can look at you? I hear that a lot on the internet. Mm. Um, There is never not a reminder that someone has an expectation because of my gender. And thus I would be remiss and honestly moronic to not recognize that the farther someone gets from their proximal relationship to white heteronormative male supremacy, the more complex that daily experience in the world gets. So when you are a person of color, when you are a woman of color, and you are not only dealing with racialized tension, but gendered tension, I don't think it does me any harm, disservice, or or reduces my potential to simply admit that I can sympathize and want to understand the experience other people have. And yet, no matter how many stories I hear, it it is an empathetic sympathy, but I can't walk in someone else's shoes unless I read something that really helps put me there. Yeah. Unless I I get to have the specific conversation. And you mentioned your your two of your friends earlier, Jessica Valenti and Jacqueline Friedman, two incredible journalists. Yes. And they they put together this beautiful book of essays called Believe Me. And it's how trusting women can change the world. And you wrote an essay for this book that really affected me so profoundly because it managed to personalize and specify this intersection of of a racial and a gendered experience that Beverly Johnson, who is one of the women who was assaulted by Bill Cosby, Mm -hmm. experienced in the aftermath of that assault. And you wrote this thing that has really stuck with me because in a way, I think we can all relate to this in whatever relative experience we have in our lives. But you talk about how Beverly feared reporting Bill Cosby, not because of the backlash she might receive or or what people might immediately assume would cause her fear, but she she was thinking about ghosts. Yeah. And when I read that, it gave me the chills because I, I really, I could viscerally feel those words because the ghosts on her mind were the ghosts of black men and boys whose bodies are so often discarded in America. And Beverly was thinking, here is Bill Cosby who, who achieved this upper echelon status in America despite his blackness. When boys like Trayvon Martin and Alton Sterling and men like Eric Garner have been cast repeatedly in this spotlight that says, well, they did something to deserve what happened to them. And the other side of that experience is so often, as you said earlier, that the violence perpetrated against women societally has been described as a singular experience. It's not systemic, especially when rich white men like Harvey Weinstein are serial rapists. It's, well, he has a problem or he's from a different era or, you know, the Santa Barbara shooter is called a lone wolf. We're not talking about the the culture of 
male entitlement to female bodies. We're not talking about cultures of right. supremacy. We're claiming that if it's sexual violence, it's, it's some weird guy with a weird issue. Right. And so here is Beverly sitting at the crux of this experience, wondering if she reports her abuser, will she somehow pull the progress of black men who aren't rich and famous? Will she pull these men backwards if she tells people what Bill Cosby did to her? I mean, what, what an impossible decision and what a service you did for all of us to tell her story so clearly and complexly. How, how do you begin to make sense of this when you speak to her? And, and what did it feel like to try to tell this story as a man who exists in a black body every day? Um, I knew it was really important, first of all, for me as a black man, understanding what or how I exist in the world and how I move through the world to present uh, that argument. You know, I think that, you know, first of all, it's, it's, it's so often left to black women to essentially make the interpretation, even of their own actions, in a way that, that you know, frankly, doesn't get heard or listened to enough. When we talk about privilege, I understand my male privilege as, I, as Hannibal Burris understood his when he called Bill Cosby out. You know, he was louder. Uh, he was more public, but he was also male. And that got him listened to. And so I understand that even if it's on a subtle level as a storyteller, um, as a person making an argument, as a person writing an essay, where I sit in the world and how I exist in the world and why people may or may not listen to me. And also, frankly, given the, the argument that I was making, and I really appreciate your kind words about it, the fact is it's a, there's only so much air, there's only so much life in all of us. And if Black women are forced or compelled to essentially hold Black men so tightly to them that in a, in a metaphorical, in a more metaphorical sense, they're so closely holding us that mm. they have no room themselves to breathe anymore. They basically force all the air out of their lungs for our benefit. And that's really the, the, how I saw the Beverly Johnson story. I saw a woman who had wrestled with an impossible choice with a you know, very logical thinking. I think, you know, hey, I see Trayvon. I, I see Freddie Gray. I see, um, you know, <clears throat> Eric Garner. All these people who have been victimized because they are black and they were doing the most minor of things moving throughout the world. Um, uh -huh. If I say this about Bill Cosby, it will ruin this avatar of black manhood that has mm. been actually accepted by American popular culture, by and large. He was America's dad. He's selling pudding pops. And, you know, he's the guy on Fat Albert when I was a kid. This is the guy who people trusted to be mm -hmm. a presentable image of a black man. As much as we may laugh at Richard Pryor and Eddie, and Eddie Murphy and a bunch of these other folks, Bill Cosby was the guy who people would welcome into their homes. And mm -hmm. 
to ruin that, I understand the kind of pressure, you know, to a certain extent, what she might have been feeling. And I can only, you know, I can only sympathize, of course, but it, it must have been unbearable. And what I hope to do with this essay is for women who are suffering this less publicly and to, to be able to see that and say, hey, we are being heard by our men, number one, but by the world at large. And also to tell people, to acquaint people who are not at all familiar with Black experiences, plural, that this is something that happens. This is something we have to worry about. This is something that's on our minds. It's much like right now with the coronavirus pandemic. Mm. I told somebody, I said, I can't wear a bandana outside of the house around my face. You understand what that looks like? I'm a black man of reasonable size. And I'm going to wear a bandana around my face. I'm going to either be regarded as a crook or as a gang mm -hmm. member. And there mm -hmm. are people who have said, oh, well, gang members brought this on themselves. Well, no, they didn't. Gang members did not bring this on themselves. Not all gang members are violent. And the police regards them in cr as criminals. They criminalize them unfairly, puts them on lists, you know, short, you know, introduces them cavalierly into the criminal justice system without having, you know, them having done anything wrong in a lot of cases. And so I knew that I couldn't move in my, in, in, in this shell through the world with a bandana around my face without maybe either some significant covering or what have you. It's just not as free as everybody else. And I was lucky enough, a friend of mine sent me a mass as kente cloth. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm celebrating my blackness in different ways during this pandemic. But just to get back to the point, I think that with this essay offer me, you know, Jacqueline and Jessica offered me a unique opportunity to really speak to how black men hopefully should perceive the plight of black women and understand that, you know, no matter how hard we have it, there is a double whammy, uh, unlike perhaps any other people in the world right now on black women in this country. And we need to appreciate the struggles that they go through and also find ways to not make it worse. So I just, we can't not make it worse by not dying at police hands. That's on the police. That's on the agents of the state. But we need to understand this rape culture and how racism intertwines within. And they, they combine to form this Leviathan that we've yet to get rid of. And uh, we, people frown at the term intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw created, but this is this is the reality of America. And if that's too academic a term for you, I don't care. I need you to understand what that means because that is the reality that we all live with. And if you don't live with it or you don't think that you do, then you still have a duty to learn about it. We need to be an inquisitive mm -hmm. people as Americans if we're ever going to get this right. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. You know, as, as you were talking about verticals of experience, whether we're talking about the intersectionality of sexual violence experienced differently in different communities, or to your point, talking about what's happening with this virus currently, yeah. you know, as you said, I, 
you said to me a moment ago, you are a black man of reasonable size. You can't walk around with a bandana over your face. And I think about the video that came out of what I believe was a Walmart Mm -hmm. um, of a man being escorted out by a police officer saying, you can't be in here wearing that mask. He was a black man. And the guy is saying, but we're supposed to wear masks in public. And there's this whole experience and, and the man took a video. And then just yesterday I saw a news article about a, a black man who was arrested outside of his home, unloading his car. He had a mask on and the police arrested him. They thought that he was disturbing the peace or breaking into the car or whatever excuse they gave. And, and the guy was like, Hey, by the way, I'm a doctor. I'm just like a doctor outside of my house, unloading my car with a mask on. Cause it's, I'm a doctor and it's a pandemic, you know? And, it is a real reality that's happening everywhere. And I think to your point, a lot of people perhaps don't experience it. So maybe they don't know how pervasive it is or, or, and I understand this, maybe don't have as much time to read the news as you and I do. And so they don't see it. And, and then I think there is this other side to it to reference a very different kind of story that you wrote where, you know, Black Panther's on the cover of Time Magazine And people say, well, see, look, that movie was one of the biggest movies ever. And it's a black superhero movie. And Lena Waithe has a production deal. And look at all these cool things that are happening. And, and, you know, there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty more parody than there used to be. And people are not understanding the differential of a success story, which by the way, took until 2018 for Black Panther to come out, which is insane. Uh, they're not understanding the differential of that movie doing well on a global scale and the daily experience of people who've suffered generational oppression. Right. And again, my desire to acknowledge it and, and the deep way in which I'm affected by the oppression of communities is because your oppression is my oppression, We're all in this together where I can be oppressed because of my gender and you can be oppressed because of your skin. The the root of that ugliness is the same. The the desire to subjugate people is oppressive. It is authoritarian. It is is about a hoarding of resources. It is about the denial of humanity. And I can't imagine being able to say, well, I don't like being oppressed, but my oppression is pretty livable. So maybe I'm not going to go ruffle feathers over there where those people are being oppressed in a way that's not livable. Cause I kind of don't want to be a target. It's like, we're all targets until none of us are targets. Right. And that is the thing we need to learn about this, this community that America has, has, has become. And as much as we may deny it or want to, you know, avoid realizing it, we are all in this together. And this, you know, frankly, this disease is making us understand that at a new level. But even, even with that understanding in hand, people hold tight to their to their beliefs and to their their own sense mm-hmm. of reality. So, but it, when I when I covered Black Panther, that that was a really interesting experience because I. I thought, you know, when I got the assignment that I was just going to be writing essentially not a review of the piece, but but just kind of a an analysis uh, through my sort of political and racial lens of what the movie was. And it would be in the art section and a you know, thousand words and that would be that. 
And I hand in the first draft and the editors say, look, now we want you to expand this. We want you to let this grow. And that's when I added the section at the top where I really kind of tried to help people who aren't black understand what this movie means to us. Uh, you know, even before it had come out, I, I, I said, you know, look, if you're white, you have heroes all day, all day. You see yourself and your reality reflected all around you all day long. And, mm. and, and to say nothing of your reality, but your history as well. There's different forms of white period pieces. You know what I mean, generally with this black period pieces, it's like y'all were slaves. And we're going to tell mm. that story again. Not that those movies haven't been good. Some of them have been good. Some of them not. But, the point is, is that our reality encompasses and our history encompasses such a wide variety of experience. And, mm. and I just think that that multiplicity uh, needs to be a little bit more on display. And I think that Black Panther offered an opportunity that I think yet is yet to be seized, to be frank, uh, since it came out. For Hollywood to understand that the multiplicity of blackness can be reflected on screen and needs to be reflected in order not just for our benefit so that we can go around, you know, doing Wakanda salutes and and having pride for a, a good couple months while the movie is out. But, you know, so that white people can understand this reality, get understand this as multidimensional. Honestly, it's not on us anymore to teach white people about how and why we deserve to exist in the world. It is also on white people to learn this and to take an active interest in learning it. And whether that they learn it by going to the Schomburg Center in New York and immersing themselves in research for a week, or they learn it by watching documentaries or pressuring their teachers to teach black literature, or they learn it by seeing Black Panther and saying, hey, that's beautiful. Those are my heroes, too. Mm-hmm. It has to come out somehow and and it has to be conspicuous and willful and and not by accident. It's you know, it's cool if it happens by accident. We'll take it. But I think if we're ever really truly going to get ourselves out of this morass, just as sexism and misogyny are problems for men to fix, because that's on us. We are the perpetrators of that. It's on white people to fix racism in America. It's not on us anymore. You know, if it ever was on us uh, to fix it, it's not. And we could make people aware of it increasingly, often repeating ourselves ad nauseum. But it is, it is, you know, things like Black Panther, why they're so significant is not merely so that I, you know, the, the five-year-old version of me or the 10-year-old version of me can go to a movie and see himself reflected on a big screen. That is important. Hmm. But it's about understanding how multifaceted our communities are and, and, and understanding that, you know, if I go into West Indian communities, you know, a black kid from Ohio, there's no, none of that heritage. I'm there to, you know, I, when I lived in Brooklyn, Crown Heights and, and Prospect Heights, I learned a lot <laughs> about that particular facet of blackness. I think people would just really benefit from being more curious and again, thinking more critically. I love that. I think about some of the young people who listen to this podcast and I don't know why I'm just like, <laughs> I'm sort of picturing the 
archetype of a girl who is 17 and might be sitting at home listening to us talk and thinking, I don't know if I've been exposed by my high school English teacher to much Black literature. Are there three books that you would say make these your pandemic homework? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 will, I will echo that. Let, let, you know, if, you, if you're listening mm. to this and you're thinking that, man, I haven't been assigned in a book by a Black author or, you know, in particular, a Black woman mm. my entire high school career. Yeah, well, I'd say join the club <laughs> because I can't think of uh, too much uh, that I was assigned, even you know, as wonderful as Shaker Heights High School is. I can't think of too many black books that I was assigned. And I think I'm thankful that I had parents who were conscious and conscientious enough to supplement my education, more or less, by feeding my curiosity. Uh, says, okay, you're going to devour these books. Well, here, devour some of these too. And also, Having people who were prideful in their jobs, you know, that people often dismiss. My my grandfather was the custodian at a school. My grandmother was the secretary. But seeing mm. them take pride and 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 honor in their work, maybe you understand from early age that that wasn't something to be looked down upon. Despite the you know my wealthy friends at my private school, whom I have fathers who were you know heads of banks and corporations and whatnot. These these are my people. And so I would say it's tough to narrow it down, but I would say if you want to narrow it down to say three books, I would read My Bondage and My Freedom by Frederick Douglass. Mm. I would read The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. And I would read Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Mm. You know, there's those are three books in I say in my formative years in terms of coming into my sense of black consciousness. A kid who went, you know, was going to a private school and didn't have that reflected around him on a daily basis, at least in that environment. That mm-hmm. really helped me understand the kind of places that my people were coming from. And mm. in terms of contemporary books, if you're up for reading one of the best memoirs ever, which is Heavy by my man Kiese Lehman, if you're up for reading folks like Octavia Butler, sci-fi. N.K. Jemison. These are people writing in different genres that are still reflecting our experiences and our realities. And I tell mm. you, one of the reasons I love Star Trek so much is that it visualized the future in which we were present. It visualized a future in which in Nyota Uhuru is a, an incredibly important person on this starship. She is a part mm-hmm. of that reality. And the fact that they did that in the 1960s, it was recognized as revolutionary in some circles, but not not more broadly because they kind of, you know, they, they limit it to sci-fi. I think science fiction is one of the most prophetic genres that we have of storytelling because it mm. reflects our reality. And then it's asked to project into the future something that we cannot see and envision how our reality is going to lead to that or not, or just a scenario of how human behavior would mm-hmm. operate in an environment that we've never seen or ever encountered. And that yeah. takes some thinking that takes some brain power. And yeah. it's just not, you know, me pitching you to like reboot alien or anything, but that would be cool if you did that. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, like sign me up. I'm ready. I know you're ready to train, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I love an action job. I'm ready. So I, I mean, but 
it's still it, you think about movies like Arrival, Amy Adams, yep. where you, you're seeing an entire perspective on this wild scenario uh, through a woman's eyes. And mm-hmm. I think people didn't understand or appreciate how revolutionary that was when, when Sigourney Weaver did it in Alien and, yep. and Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween even. We have to think about how we can articulate our stories through the lens of people who aren't white men. And that's one of the things that Black Panther, getting back to the point, one of the things that Black Panther really drove home. There's not just a black man whose, whose perspective you see. I mean, it had one of the most complex villains in film history. Uh, who's mm-hmm. who, who you really took over as the protagonist almost for a little bit. And you, mm-hmm. I've never felt some, so much empathy for a villain. And also at the end of the, at the end of the film, spoiler alert, T'Challa realizes to a certain degree that his, the Killmonger is, is correct and adopts essentially a modified version of his plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, what movie, what movie do you see where the hero triumphs over the villain and then basically says, okay, I like your plan. I'm just going to adopt some changes, mm. make it more me, you know. And <laughs> well, and I might argue that, that more even than saying I like your plan, what he says when our hero looks at a villain and says, I understand that your heart broke in your childhood mm-hmm. trauma and that you have been trying to avenge that trauma your whole life. I also want to avenge traumatized people, but I don't want to do it by harming others. I want to do it by creating a more just world and by breaking down borders and by sharing resources. I mean, it was an incredibly profound message. And I I loved it. I mean, I want to talk about people's unprocessed childhood trauma all day. You know, that's that's one of the things I I think is so important about our, our ever widening consciousness, you know, we have all these resources. I talked to my mm-hmm. parents about this recently and my mom said, you know, you guys have all these resources we uh. didn't have, you know, these conversations about trauma and, and the popularization of therapy and, and that it's cool to take care of your mental health. You know, we're in this really special time. And, and I think that is why so many people are, opening their eyes to systems are, are looking at who gets to tell the stories. You know, I, I think about something you mentioned a while back before we, you know, we got into movies and books, but when you were talking about how coronavirus, our our current pandemic situation is so disproportionately affecting black and brown and indigenous communities. And it's so, that article, I mean, I read it and it's, it is a gut punch, and I mean that in the best way possible. It's so important to look at it, you know, and, and through the storytelling lens, you said we always die Never first. And, and we, are, we are seeing, and, and you wrote about the administration, you wrote, they are not just complicit, but accelerants in the conditions that made Black people more vulnerable to the novel coronavirus to begin with. And these are the things we've been discussing, these generational systems of oppression, denial of access to care, maybe not overt violence, but a withholding of resources. And now we see what's happening in these communities and and being the journalist that you are and having that kind of expertise that comes from such exposure 
to people's realities, what do you think are the steps that need to be taken? And how would you suggest, without co-opting the narrative or taking the mic, how can the rest of us advocate for and with communities of color who are being denied the resources that they need at this time? Mm. I think what we have to do is be humble, number one. Humility is, is key. When I wrote that essay in that book, I had to be humble to understand that, hey, I don't have the experience Black women have. So I think that if you want to be a true ally, you have to first humble yourself and understand what you don't know and, and be willing to learn and absorb knowledge. But don't depend wholly upon the people who you're trying to represent to give you that knowledge, if that, if that makes any sense. There has to be an inherent drive and curiosity that you exhibit, and it's easily recognizable. It's like, okay, this person is actually trying to advocate for me because they understand what they don't know, and they're trying to go out and learn it, but they're not depending upon me to, like, school them in, in all things black, <laughs> you know, and, and so that they can help me. That gets exhausting. And, you know, I'm sure for women, it gets exhausting when men try to help and they're like, okay, well, tell me what it's, it's like being a woman in America. Well, like, how much time do you have? You know, <laughs> you know, uh, and so I think that that humility is, is key. I think that a true grasp on the facts is, is essential. Uh, you can't just come out with outrage. Everyone, like a lot of people are pissed off. A lot of people are angry about what's going on in the world, but you need to have the data. You need to have the information. And that doesn't mean that everyone needs to be reporters per se, but we all have cameras in our hands now. We all have these, you know, these computers in our hands. And I don't think enough of us are using them in the way that they should be used. I think those are two steps right off the bat. Be informed and be humble. It's just essential. Well, my friend, the time has come for me to ask you my very favorite question. Oh, man, here we go. We're having a conversation on work in progress. And when you hear the phrase, be it something personal or professional, what comes up in your mind and heart as a work in progress in your life right now? Um, two things, one personal, one professional. I'll start with the professional. Mm. What comes to mind when I hear that phrase, especially as I listen to your show, is that the work is progress. And we need to understand that the work that we put in every day it needs to be understood that it's, 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 while it may feel like we're standing still so often, it's, it's helping progress something somewhere that maybe we don't see. I, it is tempting in this business to get worried about who's retweeting you, how many, how many likes you have. Is that a measure of your, your, your scope of influence? And I encourage people who are in and out of media to, to understand that. What you're doing on a daily basis has, has value beyond this easily quantifiable measures that social media and other things have introduced in order to, frankly, profit all of us. We need to understand that this, is, you know, this work that we do every day moves us forward. And if you truly feel like your work isn't moving you forward, then yes, perhaps some introspection is needed. But yeah, I think people don't understand, and I certainly needed to understand it too, even even recently, that the work is progress. And personally, on a personal level, even at 44 years old, um, I think I still 
and getting to know myself and going through a traumatic time right now as we all are on a collective level and, and as I am on personal level, I think that you really get to learn more about who you are and you really need to have that firm basis in mind. I, I really, as much as I know my, my predilections and my peccadillos, I think you learn new things about yourself when you go through trauma. Oh, yeah. Given that my career essentially stems from a moment of trauma with my cousin's death, I'm constantly reexamining that. Not just as far as what I do every day, but as far as how I move through the world. And I know that he would not want me so preoccupied, per se, with what happened to him at least maybe i feel that way but at the same time you have to work through what you got so that means especially men out here listening go to therapy it's not an indication that you're soft it's not an indication that you're not masculine um it's not an indication that you are somehow faulty even Mm -mm. it just means that you're vulnerable that's a good thing And vulnerability, to Brene Brown's point, you know, as a researcher, Mm -hmm. actually requires the most courage. So I look around and I'm like, oh, boys, you want to prove to me that you are masculine? How's your vulnerability going? (laughs) Because otherwise, (laughs) otherwise you're just playing. Right, right. For lack of a better word, it's acting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not all of us are very good actors, unlike, you know, present company here. (laughs) So thank you. I, um, yeah, that's, those are the things you're very welcome. And uh, thank you for your vulnerability and for your commitment and, and your unwavering pursuit of progress and the truth. It, it really means a lot. And I'm very honored to be your friend. The feeling is very mutual. (laughs) 